This morning, we find ourselves at the midpoint of our study of the second letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. Our study is taken right from the pages of this letter. It's been entitled, Concerning the Coming of Our Lord. These past several weeks, we've been considering the topic of eschatology. That's the the theological uh, word here. Eschatology is end-time study, what the Bible says about the future. These last two Sundays in particular, we have learned that biblical prophecy is a tapestry of spectacular truths, but that the glorious appearing of King Jesus is the centerpiece. The second coming of Christ, which we believe to be, will happen visibly, bodily, we believe that Jesus will reign on this very earth, that is far and away the most important conviction that one can have about what's to come. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That's where Paul starts. Nevertheless, just as Paul continues to teach the church in Thessalonica concerning the coming of our Lord, that before the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ must come the rebellion and its antichrist. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 2 is just as true as chapter 1. Perhaps not as equally important in the great scheme of things, but equally true. So the first half of this letter deals with end-time beliefs. And today, we're going to begin the second half of the letter that focuses on end-time behavior. Now, it may be that you're with us this morning, and right up until now, you've never really, truth be told, given much sustained thought to matters of biblical prophecy. Perhaps it's been a backburner issue for you. But maybe, as we've been studying this over the past couple of weeks, you're beginning to see that that approach can't last forever. And if that's you, I want to assure you this morning that biblical eschatology is not a distraction from our mission. It's actually the very destination of our mission. Our mission is to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ, who is coming soon, right? Living with a a laser-like focus on the second coming holds incredibly healthy, practical outcomes for us as a church. As we say in the free church, this coming of Christ demands constant expectancy. And as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and to energetic mission. So let's not play these off against one another as if Uh, to focus on the coming of Christ distracts us from our mission. It's not. It's the destination of our mission. Others of you have invested time in these matters. In fact, far more time than I've ever invested in these matters. You do have a picture in your mind with an eschatological, with an end-time timetable. And as we're studying this letter, it is possible that you're beginning to see that event horizon changing. What I mean is while you're grateful to be growing in your knowledge of this letter, you're also seeing perhaps that the truths here in 2 Thessalonians maybe are unsettling, disturbing to some degree. You're grateful to be growing in your knowledge of this letter, but you're also anxious. 
So, you may be in either group. Maybe biblical prophecy feels different and new to you, or perhaps biblical prophecy feels differently true to you. Either way, here's the big idea today. If your head is spinning with news of what's to come, seek to find your bearings in what God's already done. I'll say that again. If your head is spinning with news of what's to come, seek to find your bearings in what God's already done done. Just three verses this morning. I want to focus on the first two right now. So listen once again as we consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you, through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here's the first of two points today. Point number one, the Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in God's pursuit of our salvation. The Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in God's pursuit of our salvation. I hope you listen carefully to verses 13 and 14. The themes that Paul takes up in these two verses in chapter 2 are themes that we as a congregation have dealt much with over the past years together. The love of God, salvation by grace, the doctrines of election and calling and sanctification. We've had entire sermon series on each of these topics. This is, in some sense, our home turf as a church, is it not? We are a gospel-centered church family, after all. And these chords that Paul strikes in verses 13 and 14 are the music of our lives. This is the, the soundtrack for our mission as a church. God loves us. God chose us. God is making us holy by His Spirit. We are called through the gospel, and it's this very gospel that as we speak these words of life to those who don't know Christ, that they sense their calling to come to Christ in. They hear that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ, just as we have. But notice that these themes, these wonderful, familiar, comforting truths in verses 13 and 15, are directly attached to the back end of what is one of the longest sustained teachings in the entire Bible on the identity and the activity of the Antichrist. See how seamlessly Paul moves from verse 12 to verse 13? In this chapter, Paul moves from end-time beliefs to now-time behavior. What's the end game for the gospel for Paul? He says it in verse 14. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God calls us through the gospel so that we may look forward to the glory of Christ. Our lives are going somewhere. History is headed toward this goal. So the Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in God's pursuit of our salvation. Our movement, the broader movement of which we find ourselves happily apart, the Evangelical Free Church of America has a, has a 10 point statement of faith. Ten articles of 
belief. And these articles range from what we believe about God to the Bible to Christ, the Spirit, the church, and Christian living, and so on. But all of these articles, even in our statement of faith, intentionally move toward a consummation. So the idea that we can just focus on the gospel and not on eschatology, on end times, is what you might call a false antithesis, a false dichotomy. Um, Should we put our efforts into exploring the gospel or the end times as a church? Right? Wrong question. Yeah, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. We don't avoid this. We embed this in in how we think and how we believe. Uh, The book Evangelical Convictions that was written by our EFCA national leadership unfolds this beautifully, even in the table of contents, how the gospel is strategically related to each stop in our statement of faith. The gospel originates with God. The gospel is revealed in the scriptures. The gospel alone addresses our greatest need, which is our colossal sin problem. The gospel is made known supremely in Jesus. The gospel is accomplished in the work of Christ, particularly his work as as he dies on the cross and is raised for us on the third day. The gospel is applied by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is embodied in the church. The gospel compels us to Christ-like living and sacrificial service. But we must never forget, as our statement of faith unfolds, that the gospel will be brought to fulfillment at the end of the age. The gospel is a train headed toward the station of final salvation. Paul's language here in verses 13 and 14 are strikingly similar to the way he talks in Romans 8, verses 29 and 30. In those verses we read, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Or as he says here more compactly in verse 14, I I love this verse, to this he called you through our gospel so that, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So just in case you wonder if something strange happened to me while I was away on sabbatical and all of a sudden I got this bug for, for end time theology, Does this seem odd to you that we're focusing on this? It shouldn't. But in case it does, if your head is spinning with news of what's to come, seek to find your bearings in what God's already done. The Bible's teaching about the end times shouldn't be conveniently divorced from, but intentionally attached to and embedded in God's pursuit of our salvation. Amen? Now, there's one more point today. It's a brief text, so it's a brief sermon. But the point is important, and I think it's going to surprise some of you if you're not aware of this. So the Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in, and here's the second point, our grasp of God's written revelation. By revelation, I don't just mean the last book of the Bible, but all of God's communication to us in Scripture, lowercase r. The Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in our grasp of God's written revelation. Verse 15 contains our marching orders. The first two verses of the text are in the indicative voice, what God has done and is doing. 
But the final verse in our text is in the imperative voice. Here's what we must do. Verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So the first two words in verse 15 are, so then. They form, in grammar, what's called a a double particle. In other words, Paul is laying serious emphasis here. He's going to land the plane. He wants us to begin rolling up our sleeves because we've got work to do. What's the nature of the work? There are two verbs here that comprise a two-sided coin of our labor. Stand firm and hold. So the first call is to be securely and unshakably committed to something. That's stand firm. Second aspect of this is, is hold to, strongly adhere to, get a grip like a dog with a chew toy on something and don't let go. Okay? So stand firm and, and hold to what? Verse 15 tells us. To the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. It was August 31st, 1993, nearly 22 years ago today, to the day, that a historic sermon was preached on the campus of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. The preacher was Dr. R. Albert Moeller, and the title of his sermon was Don't Just Do Something, Stand There. What made the sermon historic wasn't simply that it laid claim to a great title, although it clearly did, but rather it's what that moment in history represented for that seminary. Southern Seminary was, in its inception in 1859, a faithful Jesus-focused, conservative, Bible-believing institution. But by the turn of the 20th century, just 40 years into the school's existence, it began to show signs of fatigue and serious drift from the center of the gospel. By the 1980s, I was a young boy, the school had drifted far from its original gospel roots to the point that few, if any, any faculty members at all at Southern Seminary believed in the authority of the Bible, believed in the exclusivity of Christ, and so on, much less his soon return. Well, in what was easily one of the most breathtaking and remarkable recoveries of doctrinal orthodoxy in American church history, conservative Christians were actually able to regain control of the seminary. It's actually, I can only think of one other situation in the history of our country where that's ever happened. And by the early 1990s, their choice, the seminary's choice to lead them into the years ahead, and still is to this day, is Dr. Albert Moeller. This young leader looked out upon this newly appointed faculty and this new student body that was coming to be trained, and he charged them in view of the tumultuous battles of doctrinal faithfulness from which they had just emerged. He, He charged them to don't just do something now. Stand there. Stand with Christ, stand with Scripture, stand with doctrinal fidelity, stand for theological faithfulness, stand with the gospel. Don't just do something. 
stand there. Well, I was pleasantly surprised to discover that Moeller's text for the sermon was none other than 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, the text that we have stretched out in front of us. And I think our marching orders for us today as a congregation are similar to what Moeller told that group of believers in Louisville, Kentucky, some 20 years ago, because they are rooted in the marching orders of the Apostle Paul in verse 15. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, we've heard this sort of language before in 2 Thessalonians. Does this sound familiar to you? The apostle warns the church at the beginning of of chapter 2 of false teachers. You recall that in the apostle's absence, some bad theology had crept into the congregation concerning the end times, and Paul is writing to set some things straight. So if you let your eyes go back up to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So somehow, maybe by word of mouth or by some sort of false epistle, the church in Thessalonica had the impression that Paul and his apostolic associates were now teaching them something completely contrary than what they had taught them when they were with them and and what was represented in their first letter. And so he charges them in verse 15, Brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. In fact, he's so careful to point out that what, he's, what they've got in front of them is the, is the real deal. Notice in chapter, 13, ver, chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 3, verse 17 of this letter, Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It's the way that I write. So he's alerting to them uh, in, here in 2 Thessalonians. They have the real deal. This is his own pen at work. Why would that be significant for us or for them more immediately? It's significant because when an inspired apostle writes words, it's not simply human communication. It's divine communication. That's why this is such a big deal. The Thessalonians really believed the words of Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit carried with them a divine authority. Paul notes that this is exactly what they believed about his writings in 1 Thessalonians. Take a look at one book earlier, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13, Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. It's it's impossible to overstate the importance of this conviction for us as a congregation. The Bible is a book simply unlike any other in the history of the world. It's not merely the word of men. It is the very word of God which is at work. The scriptures do work in us as we believe them. In fact, based on what we learned in our passage last week, the scriptures are doing work even as we don't believe in them. The Bible is at work even in unbelievers, hardening them, confirming them in their unbelief, Paul says. So what does all this mean? What's the practical upshot of verse 15 in our lives this week? Well, here it is. 
The Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in our grasp of God's written revelation. As you read Scripture, expect to make progress, particularly in this area of what the Bible says about what's to come, about the end times. Actual growth and development in your understanding and application of what the Bible says about the last days. In context here, Paul clearly felt as though this church should have been able to spot the false teaching with which they were being confronted. How? By standing firm and holding to the scriptures, even when their conclusions might differ from those around them or from the drift of popular culture, or in our case, when your conclusions might differ from popular Christian fiction or movies, or when your conclusions might differ from those around you. If you stand by the word of God, you may look odd, but you will be safe, and in time, you will shown to be right. Would you like an encouraging example of this in church history? The Old Testament prophets consistently, relentlessly spoke of the hope of the restoration of national Israel to their land, the land that we call Palestine. The matter of the return of the Jews to Palestine was a matter of preoccupation with the biblical prophets. Now, after the destruction of the temple and the dispersal of the Jews from Jerusalem in A.D., 70. This was a hope that was increasingly held, truth be told, as a minority report down through church history. The history of this, uh, the broader church over the millennia has not been one of a restoration theology for the Jewish people, but rather a replacement theology, that the church has taken the, usurped the, the place of the, the Jews. Not usurped, but I would say stands in the place of the Jews. Well, as history wore on, this was a report, a minority report, and it was uh, less and less held. From the ghettos throughout Europe and Russia to the shores of the great cities of America, just prior to 1948, the one place you were sure not to see a Hebrew, a Jew, was in the land of Palestine. They just weren't there. And yet, long before their return to the land, faithful Christians, pastors and preachers, saw it. They believed it, and they spoke frequently of it. Against all odds, they believed the words of the prophets. J.C. Ryle, who I've quoted dozens of times, probably from this pulpit over the last decade, was the Bishop of Liverpool. In the late 19th century, he saw it. Ryle said, and I quote, I believe that the Jews shall ultimately be gathered in again as a separate nation restored to their own land. Ryle died in 1900. He wrote those words a full generation before the Jews returned to the land. Consider the preaching of Charles Spurgeon, who I've quoted not just dozens of times, but scores of times from this pulpit. Spurgeon, who died prior to anything resembling a, a movement of Zionism, said this, speaking of Israel, she is to be reorganized. Her scattered bones are to be brought together. There will be a native government again. There will again be the form of a political body. A state shall be incorporated. 
Spurgeon died in 1892. Horatius Bonar, one of my favorite pastors, a Scottish pastor, a contemporary of Spurgeon, said, I'm one of those who believe in Israel's restoration, who receive it as a future certainty that all Israel will be gathered. Time would fail me were we to consider all of the Puritans that held this hope. Jonathan Edwards, Cotton Mather, Jeremiah Burroughs, many, many others believed in the restoration of the Jews to Palestine. Hundreds of years before 1948, they saw it. You say, did they have a crystal ball? No, they had the Holy Scriptures. And they looked very strange as they were proclaiming it. It looked very unlikely for hundreds and hundreds of years. One more example along these lines will suffice, and then we'll conclude. My hero, I discovered John Owen, was one of these men. Owen affirmed Israel's return to Palestine nearly 300 years before it happened. In volume one of his commentary on the book of Hebrews, writing in 1668, Owen said, It is granted that the nation of the Jews all the world over shall receive deliverance from their captivity and restoration to their own land. They shall receive restoration to their own land. It's only the thing itself, I assert, nor have any cause to inquire into the time or manner of its accomplishment. The event can be the only infallible expositor of these things. I love that. In other words, when you see it happen, you'll, you'll know that we were barking up the right tree. Friends, Owen wrote those words in 1668, 280 years before the birth of the modern state of Israel. So Ryle, Spurgeon, Bonar, Owen, each of them believed things that were out of step with the prevailing views of the broader church history. They're trusting the word of God. They looked speculative at best in the days that they lived in. And yet looking backward, hindsight 2020, as we say, they look like prophets. No, they're not prophets. They're Christians. They're people. They're pastors who simply believed the prophetic word. It's amazing, isn't it? The Jews are back in the land, six million strong. Trust the Bible, believe the prophetic word. Many more prophecies are yet to be fulfilled, including Israel's nationwide repentance as a people. Not simply they're coming to the land, but they're coming to the Lord. We ought to be expectant about that, hopeful about that. And the greatest hope of all that we treasure, the blessed hope, is the return of of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many more prophecies, the most important yet to be fulfilled. So, the Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in our grasp of God's written revelation. Expect to make progress in this. So if your head is spinning with news of what's to come, seek to find your bearings in what God's already done. The Bible's teaching concerning the end times must not be conveniently avoided, but rather consistently embedded in two areas. First, in God's pursuit of our salvation. Secondly, in our grasp of God's written revelation. This week, our focus is on the ongoing privilege we have to grow in our knowledge of Holy Scripture and how we put those pieces together as we look forward to the soon return of Jesus. Next week, our joy will be to take our second step in the practical application of this letter as we consider the role of prayer together. Prayer looms large in this letter, and we'll begin to put some of those texts together next Sunday as we consider the role of prayer with and for one another in this study concerning the coming 
of our Lord.